he goes down into Egypt and he faces the danger of a baby-killing king. Well, we remember that from the story of Moses, don't we? Moses faced the danger of a baby-killing king. The devil has always used the power of the throne to try and strangle the child of promise in his infancy. That is a pattern in the Bible. That is a pattern in the history of Israel. And now we see that it is a pattern in the life of Jesus, just as we would expect. Jesus is living the history of Israel, only this time he's doing it right. That's the gospel. Jesus does for us what we could never do for ourselves, and he pays for what we have done in his body on the cross. That is Matthew's gospel. Thanks be to God. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Jesus relives the history of Israel. He repeats the patterns. He fulfills the expectations. He realizes the hope and promises. As we learned about last week, he is the second Adam, the seed of Abraham, and the long-awaited son of David. He is everything we've been looking for and everything we need. That's the gospel. And as we will be hearing today, that's Matthew's gospel. This is the good news that Matthew has set out to tell. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 2. When most scholars outline the Gospel of Matthew, they generally describe both chapters 1 and 2 as comprising the prologue to the work as a whole. So this is backstory, but this is backstory with a point. And the point seems to be that Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. Jesus is the one who has promised to come through Abraham and through David. Jesus is the true Adam, the true Israel, and the true Son of God, and therefore, his story is, in some sense, a retelling of the story. It will be filled with echoes, allusions, fulfillments, and recapitulations of the Old Testament story of the people of God. Matthew is careful to highlight those things as he summarizes the story of Jesus' earliest days. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, notice that this was after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. By this time, Jesus is described as a child living in a house. The word used here suggests that Jesus was around two years old. The fact that Herod will later target toddlers as opposed to infants is another reminder that some considerable time has passed since Jesus was actually born. So this is not a birth narrative per se. There really is only one birth narrative in the New Testament, and that is found in the Gospel of Luke. We should probably mention here that we aren't exactly sure when Jesus was born. Matthew says that it was in the days of Herod the king, so we know that it was obviously before King Herod died, which we believe happened around the year 4 BC. If Jesus was a toddler while Herod was still alive, that would suggest that Jesus was born in 5 or 6 BC. Now, how in the world could Jesus have been born in 6 BC? BC stands for before Christ. 
Well, actually, the idea of setting our calendar to the birth of Christ began with a monk named Dionysus Exiguus, or Dionysius the Small, and it goes back to the early days of the 6th century. However, scholars now agree that Dionysius was off with respect to the death of Herod by about four years. So that means our calendar is now off by about four years. So take whatever year it is now when you're listening and add four, and that's the real date relative to the birth of Christ. We should probably also mention while we're here that Jesus was almost certainly not born on December 25th. The church picked that date as an appropriate and useful time to celebrate the birth of Jesus, but when we look at what we know about when sheep were in the fields around Bethlehem and when we consider the rotation of priestly service relative to Zechariah's encounter and its connection to Jesus' birth, scholars now suggest that Jesus was likely born somewhere between mid-September and early October. Now, none of that really matters, though, because if it did, if we needed to know specifically if there was some special significance about the day or month of Jesus' birth, then Matthew would have told us what it was. But he didn't, and therefore I don't think we should be all that concerned about it. What matters is that he was born. He was born of a virgin in the city of David, according to the scriptures, thanks be to God. Now, the King Herod in the story is Herod the Great, or Herod the Builder. There are several different Herods in the New Testament, and it can be very difficult to keep them all straight. About this Herod, Leon Morris writes, he was not a Jew, his father being an Idumean, and his mother an Arabian. But the Romans made him king of Judea in 40 BC. He was thus understandably concerned about the report that an heir to the rightful king of Israel had been born in the city of David. Herod never sat easy upon the Jewish throne, and his sense of vulnerability made him increasingly violent and cruel, as this story suggests. The Magi are likely wise men from Babylon or Persia. They represent a sort of first fruits of the Gentile ingathering. They came to Jerusalem from the east, the text says, and we'll jump back now into Scripture at verse 2, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. The citation there seems to be a, a conflation of Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2. As for the exact nature of this star that was seen by the wise men, there have been many attempts to identify this star with a particular conjunction of planets or with the explosion of a supernova or the appearance of a comet, but none of those efforts is particularly convincing. And since Matthew doesn't elaborate, again, it would appear unwise for us to put too much stress upon those sorts of details. Obviously, some sort of astronomical observable phenomenon alerted the wise men to the birth of the Jewish Messiah, and they came to Jerusalem to investigate further. Also, we should probably notice that the text doesn't say that there were three wise men. There may have been three, or there may have been 13. We don't know. 
And again, Matthew doesn't say, so it likely doesn't matter a great deal. Well, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can, because I feel like you're stepping all over my favorite Christmas beliefs and traditions here, and I don't like it. Okay, first of all, you said that Jesus probably wasn't born on December 25th. The Christmas star maybe wasn't even a real star. And then you said, and I can't believe this, the wise men don't belong in my nativity scene. And now you're saying there may have been four, five, or 15 wise, what, 15 wise men, what is going on here? Are you just now trying to ruin my entire Christmas celebration? No, I'm, I'm definitely not <laughs> trying to do that. And I totally get that we have some traditions that grow up around the text or even apart from the text that aren't necessarily bad. But it probably is helpful to know what is and what is not actually in the Bible. Well, I agree. And yes, I'm totally joking, by the way, kind of. But I do wonder how some of these traditions got started and how we should feel about some of these things, which can become semi-serious disagreements amongst believers come Christmas time. Yeah, the Internet has not been super helpful here. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, yeah, <laughs> put that on repeat. You know, every year on Facebook, I see someone saying that we shouldn't even celebrate Christmas because Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. Mm. And, and this date used to be some kind of pagan holiday. So we're really just being pagans when we celebrate Christmas. Right. Yeah, I've seen that, too. So where in the world does this come from? Well, listen, everything we do has in some sense replaced something else. Christianity took over the Roman world pretty rapidly. And so as paganism died off, the church began looking at the calendar and saying, well, we got an open space here now. What should we put there in its place? And there were certain things they wanted to emphasize every year, that the incarnation, the, the passion, the resurrection, the ascension, the outpouring of the spirit, etc. So each of those things was given an anchor spot in the yearly calendar. It was brilliant, to be honest with you, from a teaching perspective. But to say, you know, there used to be a pagan festival on this date is hardly to establish a pagan background for a Christian festival. Coincidence is not correlation. The mm. fact that two events happened on the same weekend in a year at different points in human history does not prove a thematic relationship. That's just bad logic. But Facebook has a way of making it seem compelling, I, I guess, to certain people. So, and I can't believe I'm saying this, <laughs> it is not a sin to celebrate Christmas. No, definitely not. Okay. But I would also say that it's, it's not a sin to celebrate Christmas in March or September or November. We aren't sure when Jesus was born, and the Bible doesn't tell us. So a day was chosen, and since we've been doing it on that day for a long time, and since there is nothing wrong with doing it then— I vote we continue. Uh, me too. I, we should vote on more things, you know. I like it when we decide major controversies on this program. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not sure how much weight our <laughs> votes carry, but as a Bible reader and a student of history and a pastor, I would argue that, that it is great to remember the Incarnation every year. Why would we not want to do that? And I think as well, there's just a ton of value in honoring the, the history of our having done that on December 25th for a very long time. So, for what it's worth, I vote we continue. All right. I like that. But, you know, Christmas in July could be a thing then. So, <laughs> now what about the other stuff that you mentioned? The star, the wise men, the number of wise men? Yeah, and of course we could add the stable to that list, right? People often point out that, that we don't actually know if it was a stable or a cave or even the basement of a house where they kept the animals. The story isn't as specific as some of our traditions. And, and that's the bottom line. Again, I would just say that you should know your Bible well enough to know what is actually in the Bible 
and what is just something from a Christmas carol or a cartoon you saw as a kid. Those things are fine, but, but they aren't inspired or authoritative. We don't know for sure what the star was. It, it was something bright that moved and that guided the wise men to the place they needed to be. We don't know for sure how many wise men there were. Again, those are places where our traditions are more specific than the Bible. That's not bad, but it is helpful to understand such things so that we don't end up on the wrong end of a game of gotcha played out on the internet. (laughs) Right, that's a really good way of putting it. All right, let's jump back into the story now at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Just another word on the star that Matthew talks about here. R.T. France says, The words came to rest mean literally came and stood and can mean only that the star itself moved to guide the Magi. Now, since stars generally don't move like that, I am inclined, along with many New Testament scholars, to think of this star as some kind of miraculous occurrence. I don't think it was merely the alignment of a couple of planets or the movement of a comet across the skies. Remember that in the Bible, angels are often referred to as stars. Revelation 9.1, for example, says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fall from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, Revelation 9.1. So that star was a he. It was an angelic creature, and I suspect that is what is going on here. We have a bright angel presenting as a star, guiding the wise men to the correct location in Bethlehem. So I don't think you're going to find this particular star on any sort of astronomical chart. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now that citation is from Hosea 11.1. And so we see here Jesus beginning to recapitulate the history of Israel. He goes down into Egypt and he faces the danger of a baby-killing king. Well, we remember that from the story of Moses, don't we? Moses faced the danger of a baby-killing king. The devil has always used the power of the throne to try and strangle the child of promise in his infancy. That is a pattern in the Bible. That is a pattern in the history of Israel. And now we see that it is a pattern in the life of Jesus, just as we would expect. 
Jesus is living the history of Israel. Only this time, he's doing it right. That's the gospel. Jesus does for us what we could never do for ourselves, and he pays for what we have done in his body on the cross. That is Matthew's gospel. Thanks be to God. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Once again, Matthew sees the fulfillment of a biblical pattern, just as was prophesied back in Genesis 3.15. The seed and the serpent are engaged in violent and perpetual enmity. The devil always has his agents, Pharaoh in one generation, Haman in another generation, and Herod in still another. And so the covenant community, mother church, we might say, is often overcome with sorrows and yet also is miraculously preserved by the Lord. The exile is long, the night is dark, but joy comes in the morning. That's the storyline of the Bible, Matthew says. And Jesus' own personal narrative aligns with that storyline perfectly. Once again, that's a major emphasis in Matthew's gospel. We're going to hear that sort of thing again and again and again. Verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So from this we infer that in 4 BC, Jesus was in Egypt perhaps living off the gifts that had been given by the Magi. However, when Herod died, they moved back to Israel, though now into Galilee, where the political situation was viewed more favorably. Once again, Matthew sees all of this as fulfilling prophecy, though in this particular case, it's not clear to which prophecy of the Old Testament he is referring. The word Nazarene does not appear anywhere in the Old Testament, nor does the word Nazareth. So, it doesn't seem as if Matthew is referring to a specific verse. Rather, he seems to be referring to the pattern of Messianic prophecy as a whole. Michael Green puts it this way. He says, A man from Nazareth was despised in Jesus' day. It was an obscure town from which no good was thought to come, situated in Galilee of the Gentiles. And there was plenty of indication among the prophets that the Messiah would be despised. Closed quote. So in that sense... Jesus being raised in Nazareth fits the general pattern of the scriptures, which speak of the Messiah growing up in obscurity and being despised. The Lord often does his work in unusual places, and he many times uses the simple things of the world to shame the wise. Thanks be to God. 
Pastor Paul, I want to go back to something you were talking about there near the end of the program audio. You talked about how Jesus fulfilled or repeated a number of Old Testament patterns in his own life and ministry. Can you flesh that out for us a little? I think most Bible readers know about the prophecies, but this idea of patterns might be slightly new for some folks. Yeah, sure. I think you're right. We, we do learn pretty early on about prophecies. Most of us uh, think about some of the great Christmas prophecies that are in the Bible. In Micah 5, for example, there's a prophecy about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. Or we think of the prophecy in Isaiah 9 that we hear about every Christmas season. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. It's hard to say that without singing it. (laughs) I know every time I hear that, I want to start singing Handel's Messiah. I know, I know. There's 100% a soundtrack for that passage running right now in my mind. Anyway, the point is we know it, right? We're familiar with that kind of prophecy. But there's another kind of prophecy that is less familiar to us, and that is the kind that is sometimes referred to as typology. Typology has to do with shapes and patterns that are repeated and that ramp up until they finally and climactically land on Jesus. Okay, so can you give us an example of that? Sure. Well, an obvious one, of course, would be the theme of tabernacle or tent. We just finished the series in Exodus, and there we see in the story of the tabernacle God's intention to dwell in the midst of his people. So that establishes a pattern with associated themes. Uh, God is holy. He wants to dwell with his people. That is complicated because we are sinful. But if we are covered in sacrificial blood and if we are very careful, we can do it. We can have the presence of God in our midst. We can approach him. We can pray. He can hear us, help us, heal us, and go with us as we live and move in this world. Okay, well, that pattern advances and repeats and ramps up in the temple narratives. So once again, all the same themes are repeated, but this time it doesn't reach its ultimate fulfillment. It doesn't ramp up another time, you might say, because of sin. Actually, the the temple narrative ends in destruction. The temple is destroyed, but then it is rebuilt. But it never seems to have the full presence of God as the tabernacle had, and as the temple of Solomon had. So that leaves us anticipating now a fulfillment in the life and story of Jesus. And of course, we get that. Jesus in John 2 says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Close quote. That's John 2, 19 to 22. So there Jesus is saying that he is the climax of the tabernacle temple storyline in the Bible. That narrative, that pattern ultimately points forward to him. He is the presence of God among his people. By means of his blood, we can approach God and pray to God. And through his mediation, we can receive help and encouragement and power. So we don't need to rebuild a physical temple in Jerusalem because we have Jesus. We have the reality that shadow anticipated. Thanks be to God. Yeah, amen. And so as Bible readers then, should we be looking for patterns that repeat and say ramp up before landing finally and climactically on Christ? Is that it? Yeah, absolutely. So so we think of the tabernacle, we think of the priesthood, we think of the sacrifices, and then we can think, for example, of the storyline around kingship and the storyline around suffering and the storyline around exodus and exile. 
all of these patterns repeat and ramp up. And as you say, climax and land on the person and work of Christ. And Matthew's gospel is fantastic at pointing those things out for us. So we're going to be talking about this phenomenon again and again and again as we make our way through it. All right. I can't wait. That's one of my favorite things about this program. I love seeing how the Old Testament anticipates and connects with the new. So thanks for that. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.